For today's passage, we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 6 and chapter 7. I know in your little, those cool little bookmarks, it says chapter 6, and next week is 7 to 8, but I decided to move chapter 7 into this week. So two chapters of Nehemiah for us today. Um, it's been some time since I've had the privilege of being here with you guys in the book of Nehemiah, and um, yeah, really looking forward to it. I hope that uh, uh, this study will be as fruitful to you as it was to me. Uh, but before we do, let me open us in a word of prayer, and then we will jump right on in. Gracious Father, we pray this morning that uh, you would put fertile soil in our hearts. Father, that we would receive the word, uh, Lord, that we would seek to understand and to apply. Uh, Lord, that we would seek to, uh, to understand why you have put the book of Nehemiah here in the Bible and why it is good for our soul and why it is good for growing in righteousness. Father, we thank you for this time. We love you, Lord. Amen. Amen. So to begin our time, I want to share with you, or maybe for some of you, to introduce you to one of my favorite heroes of church history. Um, If you're unfamiliar with him, one of my favorite church history heroes um, is a man named Athanasius, a man who served as the Bishop of Alexandria um, during the third century. Uh, he, was, um, uh, he was nicknamed the Black Dwarf uh, because apparently most likely he was short and uh, was of dark skin. But this man is important because he played a pivotal role in the protection of the doctrine of the Trinity. At a time uh, when the Uh, the false teacher Arius was spreading the teaching that Jesus was not uh, fully God. He was created. At that time, it was Athanasius who really stood alone to defend Christianity uh, from the teachings of Arius. Uh, During this time, uh, what became known as the Arian controversy got huge. And during that time, as Athanasius stood to defend against those teachings, there was basically an endless supply of conspirators and those who wanted to harm and discredit Athanasius. Because they couldn't disprove his arguments from the Bible, they resorted to attack his character and ultimately his life. Let me share a few stories uh, from his time. Uh, There was one time during a council in Tyre in 355 A.D., in which Athanasius was asked to attend. And the enemies of Athanasius attempted to assassinate his character by charging him uh, with crimes he didn't commit. Uh, they brought before Athanasius a woman who claimed that he had, uh, had sexual immorality with this woman. Uh, the bishops produced this woman, and she went on to explain all these different uh, lewd uh, things that they did. During this testimony... Athanasius turns to one of his friends, one of his allies, and he hands him Athanasius' staff. His friend then goes and stands up and says, so I have done these things to you, standing in the place of Athanasius. And she says, I would know you anywhere, Athanasius. And the rest of the crowd erupts in laughter, um, putting quickly uh, to bed uh, this false accusation. But that was amateur compared to what happened later. Uh, later on, uh, the attempts of Athanasius's enemies would lead to accusing him of murder. Uh, they accused him of murdering a bishop 
named Arsenius. And not only that, but they claimed that Athanasius had actually cut off his right hand, or one of his hands, and used it uh, for black magic. I know it sounds made up, but it's true. And I'm sure that that murder accusation seemed like a good idea at the time, but there was only two problems. Number one, Arsenius was still alive. And number two, he still had both hands attached. So what uh, Athanasius does um, is ever having a flair for the dramatic, he shows up to the trial, and he, um, he finds Arsenius. And Arsenius was supposed to hide, but Arsenius has a change of heart. He basically gets Arsenius to hide under a cloak, and when they produce the actual hand, I don't know how they did that, uh, he says, aha, and pulls over the cloak, and there's Arsenius awkwardly alive with both hands attached, and uh, with a little bit of tongue-in-cheek, he says, perhaps Arsenius was born with three hands. But still the accusations came. Uh, Athanasius was later exiled and excommunicated from the church multiple times on account of holding to the belief that Jesus is fully man and fully God. And so if the enemies uh, among the priests were not enough, eventually he made an enemy with the emperor himself, Emperor Julian. Uh, During this time, uh, Emperor Julian sent assassins to actually kill Athanasius. And Athanasius was actually able to escape through the help of of some allies, and he made his way down a boat down the Nile River. Well, quickly, those who were in his sailboat quickly realized that the assassins were not far behind, and they were much faster than theirs was. And they said, Athanasius, what shall we do? Athanasius, however, was not worried. He said, turn the boat around. And as he rowed towards them, the assassins shouted, have you seen Athanasius? Athanasius quickly replied, Ah, he is just in front of you, and if you hurry, you shall quickly overtake him. And the assassins rode fast and faster the opposite direction. When all was said and done, Athanasius had been exiled and communicated five times. He had served um, as the Bishop of Alexandria for 45 years, but he was exiled for 17 of them. And because of this, Athanasius has earned perhaps the most epic name in church history, the nickname Athanasius Contramundum, which basically means Athanasian, Athanasius, one man against the world. He was a man who, despite him serving God and defending the doctrine of the Trinity, the Bible itself, they went after his name, his reputation. They went after his life. They accused him of abuse of power. And through it all, he stayed his hand closely to the word of God and persevered to do a mighty work for God. And so today, as we turn to Nehemiah, we're going to see that Nehemiah shares more than one similarity to the things that Athanasius went through. In our time today, um, the way I'm going to be approaching uh, Nehemiah 6 and 7 is in four parts. We're going to see in verses chapter 6, verses 1 to 9, what I'm calling the innocent invitation, and there are quotation, finger quotation marks there for a reason. Uh, in, chap- in chapter 6, verses 10 to 14, we will go to the reasonable, reasonable retreat. And then in verses 15 to 19, we will look at the foes at the finish line. And then in chapter 7, we will look at the resettlement of the remnant. 
And the way I'll be approaching this is we'll read the text as we go along um, to just unpack the narrative um, for all its drama and and for all that happens here. So let's begin in Nehemiah chapter 6. Let me read verses 1 to 9. This is what it says. Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates. Sanballat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come, and let us meet together at Hakepharim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them, saying, I am doing a great work, and I cannot calm down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sanballat, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. It was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. You have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now come, and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him, saying, No such thing as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work, and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. All right, so before we kind of jump directly into the text, probably a little bit of context is helpful. Uh, And every time we are here in Nehemiah, our our review here gets a little bit longer. Uh, But but what's happened so far? Uh, So far, we have learned that Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king of Persia. Um, He is a trusted official. And in chapter 1, he prays to God because the walls of Jerusalem have been destroyed. In fact, the city has been destroyed. And he asks God for the ability to go and rebuild these walls. Now, to do that, he'll have to ask the king for favor. And so he goes up to the king in Nehemiah chapter 2, King Artaxerxes, and he asks him for extended vacation leave or a work abroad program and asks if he can rebuild the walls. Artaxerxes grants that, and not only does he grant him the ability, he even grants him the funds. He gives him the king's credit card to go ahead and do so. Nehemiah returns to Jerusalem, and he begins to rebuild the wall. And what might seem like just a... um, uh, an extended building project really becomes an exercise in perseverance and spiritual grit. Because when he shows up, there are opponents to Nehemiah's work. We meet Tobiah, Sanballat, Geshem the Arab, and in our chapter here it even says, and all the other enemies. So we're going to find out there are a lot more. And we see in chapter 4 that Nehemiah will be opposed from the outside. They will threaten that um, neighboring armies will come and attack them at night. Then later on in chapter 5, there is murmurs in the camp. There are um, uh, people are losing spirit. And the wealthy Jews within those who are building are actually oppressing the poor. So we have attacks from the outside. We have attacks from within. And then in chapter 6, we're going to see the attacks are about to become personal. They weren't able to shatter the 
physical military defenses to break in. They weren't able to fully break the spirit of the people. So now they're going to go after the man himself, Nehemiah, and they're going to see if they can use fear to break Nehemiah. Now, it's important as we read about this that we don't relegate Nehemiah's building project to simply a man wanting to uh, fulfill a passion project, right? Rightly understood, we've been talking about how the destruction or the lack of the walls in Jerusalem would signify an Israel that was in spiritual disrepair. If you read Deuteronomy, it talks about how when God is not being followed in Israel, you will see a Israel without walls. But as Nehemiah prays in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 8, he says, Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, and he's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 4 here, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. They were unfaithful, they were scattered, they were ruined, they were conquered. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though you're outcasts, and they are outcasts, they are few, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, From there, I will gather them and bring them into the place I have chosen. Nehemiah is a man who is passionate about fulfilling the word of God in God's glory. He is saying, God, I've seen your word, and now we want to do it. I want to bring the people to return. I want to bring them back to you. You said that not only will they come back, they will dwell again in the land. And that's exactly what Nehemiah is doing. Nehemiah's great wall is about a great return of Israel uh, back to following after God himself. So let's turn now to our passage. So the way this passage begins, we, um, we enter here in chapter 6, and we hear that Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and just all the enemies, they have heard that Nehemiah built the wall. The wall is pretty much done. It says he built the wall, and there was no breach in it, although at this time he had not set up the door. So the walls are pretty much done. There's no more holes, but perhaps the most important part, the gate itself, uh, is not set up. So what happens is <clears throat> Sanballat and the enemies, they send a letter to Nehemiah, an innocent-sounding letter. Um, they figure at this point, you know, we, we've tried to oppose the wall, but the wall is just about done. Um, you know, let's make some peace, you know, um, and this is what they say. Come and let us meet together at Hakepharim in the plain of Ono. The idea here is, you know, they realize you're a big deal, I'm a big deal. We're going to have to learn to work this out together. Uh, the idea being put forth is, you know, Nehemiah, I know we've had our issues, but let's come together to meet. They suggest meeting at the plain of Ono, which probably was a neutral territory. Um, It was about 27 miles northwest of Jerusalem, which would have put it at least one day's journey out um, to reach there. If you figure he goes one one day over there, one day to actually talk and have a meeting, another day back, it would have been at least three days. Doesn't seem that long, right? Seems innocent at first. But Nehemiah is not to be fooled. He says, but they intended to do me harm. Nehemiah sees through his discernment, uh, through his wisdom as a leader, that this is a thinly veiled attempt to harm Nehemiah, most likely an assassination attempt on his life. What might have begun with a handshake and a pat on the back would probably end with a knife in his back. And so Nehemiah's response is firm. It's straightforward and simple. What he says is 
I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? As Nehemiah says this, um, you know, I, I think there's a few things to, to take note of. Nehemiah first begins by responding and saying, you know, I know this sounds good, um, but I, he, doesn't, he says, I am doing a great work. What is important here is what I'm doing. This work on the wall is important. It's great. It's, it's necessary. And as we talked about earlier, this wasn't just about building a wall. It wasn't just about national security. It was about the glory of God. Nehemiah recognizes that his response will be based off of the fact that what he's doing is great because the charge he's been given doesn't just come from the king of Persia. It comes from God himself. And so Nehemiah is working to fulfill the promises of God. And as a response, he doesn't just say that, but he actually says, I will not come down. Nehemiah recognizes there there are some things that are so important that at crucial junctions in our life, other things have to wait. You know, um, on the front of it, he could have just said, well, you know, maybe I'll just go down and meet them. It's not that big of a deal. But he recognizes that at that point, if he were to come down and stop what he's doing, the work on the wall will cease. For whatever reason, Nehemiah was crucial uh, to this work. He, was, he understood that they needed him to motivate the people, to administrate what was happening, and to man the defenses of Israel. And so he says no. And he says no four times because Sambalot sends, sends the same message four different times. And you can imagine the pressure that Nehemiah might have had. You know, people saying, hey, like, like, look, they're, they're trying to make peace with us. Like, Nehemiah, why won't you go and talk to him? Like, we're going to have to live next to these guys. Like, why not? To contextualize it, one pastor imagines the following headline could have been written in the local newspaper to help us understand what this might have felt like. The headline might have read, read, Nehemiah says no to oh no. Samaritan officials have disclosed that Nehemiah, a governor of Judah, have again turned down the offer of Governor Sanballat of Samaria to meet in one of the villages of Ono on the Judah-Samaria border. The proposed conference would have included the big four, Geshem, leader of the Arabs, Tobiah, leader of the Ammonites, Sanballat, and Nehemiah. Sanballat issued a statement today in which he sharply criticized Nehemiah for his repeated refusals to cooperate. He reports that the purpose of such a meeting would be the the work of a formula for lasting peace in the region. The Samaritan leader even said with frustration, this is the fourth time Nehemiah has turned down my invitation for an attempt for mutual peace. All these refusals indicate that the violence that may result rests sorely upon Jerusalem and Nehemiah himself. You can imagine the pressure that Nehemiah might have felt. Um, People saying, you should do this, You, you just go and talk to them. But Nehemiah recognizes that his work is about the glory of God, and he sticks his hand to it. And then they go further. The enemies then, they accuse him, and they say, in short, they accuse him that, you know, it's written, it's being said, and also my buddy Geshem the Arab also says, I'm just adding some weight to his argument, that you are building these walls because you would intend to rebel. And this is actually the very same argument that uh, was made in Ezra when they actually first stopped the building of the wall. Someone also wrote a letter, um, a man by Shimshai, Shimshi. Um, 
he, whichever one it was, he wrote a letter and they got the wall to stop being built because they said, the walls will be built and you'll have rebellion on your hands. But Nehemiah quickly puts that falsity to rest. And he simply and just directly says, no such thing as you say have been done, for you're inventing them out of your own mind. And it says they wanted to frighten us. The enemies of God were using every weapon, every weapon of mass distraction in order to get them to be turned away from what they needed to do. And, you know, as we look at this passage, we're going to see that fear is a common thing that Sembalot will use. And we are reminded, even in our own Christian life, that fear is a common tactic that the enemy uses as well. That it's so easy um, for fear to go into our hearts to give us second doubts about serving God, about talking to that non-Christian friend about Jesus Christ, um, to have fear about serving God wholeheartedly or talking to a family member, or standing up for the right, standing up for the righteous. But in typical Nehemiah fashion, we get Nehemiah's response. And this is one of my favorite things about Nehemiah, is he just, when something happens, Nehemiah just goes into prayer. And he says, very simply, but now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. When an innocent-sounding invitation that seems reasonable comes forward, when an allegation of rebellion comes forward, he says, oh God, strengthen my hands. He asks God for the strength and the ability and the willpower and the perseverance to honor God despite difficulty, despite pressure, despite many people probably wanting him to do many other things. He asks God for the strength and the ability that he knows he doesn't have on his own. We then move on to the next part. Now, after Nehemiah puts, ends that conversation with Sambalat, he for whatever reason, uh, goes to the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deleah, the son of Mehetabel. And it's here that we come to what we might call the reasonable retreat. He comes to this prophet, and we're not sure why, but for whatever reason, he does. Probably he um, received word from Shemaiah that he has a message for Nehemiah. And probably going in, at first, he trusts uh, this so-called prophet. And he makes what we might call a reasonable Warning a reasonable request to retreat and to hide. He says this. Um, at this time he was confined. Oh, he said at this time he was confined to his home, and we're not quite sure why he was confined. Um, scholars have a couple different views. Some think it might have been because he was sick or ritually unclean. Possible, but they seem unlikely because what he's going to do is invite him to go into the temple, which he still would be able to do. So. What most scholars guess is that perhaps this was a symbolic gesture. He was symbolically confined to his house in order to give a message to Nehemiah, kind of similar to how Isaiah walked around naked for a number of years to, to illustrate a message God wanted to tell Israel, why Nehemiah, not why Nehemiah, why Ezekiel slept on his, or was on his side for many days. But either way, Nehemiah goes to Shemaiah. And Shemaiah says this, and it's interpreted as, it's, it's apparently it's a prophecy, or a supposed one. He says, let us meet, and it sounds a lot like the invitation from Sanballat earlier. Let us meet together in the house of God, within the temple, and let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you, and they are coming to kill you by night. Twice he used the words kill, probably to in, intend to encourage fear, to make him worried about his life. 
Before the first, uh, you know, the, at first they attack Nehemiah's reputation. Like, you're going to be a, a rebel. You're going to be your own, uh, your own kind of king. But now he's just telling them straight up directly, they, people are coming to kill you at night, maybe even this night. And you can imagine all that Nehemiah has been through. I mean, this wasn't just one threat or one warning. I mean, Nehemiah has so much reason to be worried for his life. I mean, time and time again, he has received threats from these enemies. They said they'll attack him. They'll attack the army. Um, they've had people um, giving Nehemiah a hard time. I mean, there is every reason for Nehemiah to want to listen to this advice. You know, it sounds reasonable. You know, I'm, I'm important. You know, if I die, the, the, the work can't go on without me. You know, you know maybe, I'll just, maybe I'll just hide. But what Nehemiah says is very telling. He says, Should such a man as I run away, and what man such as I could go into the temple and live, I will not go in. What Nehemiah has to say uh, is, is important. Because at first, you know, it just sounds like, yeah, just pragmatic, protect yourself. Got to take care of yourself. But Nehemiah knew the Old Testament, and he had a high view of the Word of God. He would have been aware of passages such as Second Chronicles 23, verse 6, verse 6, which says, Let no one enter the house of the Lord, the temple, except the priests and ministering Levites. They may enter, for they are holy, but all the people shall keep the charge of the Lord. Nehemiah was not a priest. He was not a Levite. Uh, he was a cupbearer. And then stronger, in Numbers 18.7, it says, <clears throat> And you and your sons, you shall guard your priesthood for all the concerns that the altar has and all that is within the veil, and you shall serve. I give you the priesthood as a gift, and any outsider who comes near shall be put to death. Shemaiah is just saying, hey, just go hide in the temple. It's, it's, it, it's one of the only buildings that's around. It, it, you can protect yourself. We can close the doors. We'll be safe, you and I. He's trying to make Nehemiah make a mistake. He's trying to get Nehemiah to compromise. To, you know, it would be reasonable. You got to just, you know, it, it's barely a temple. You know, we don't even have all the normal worship things set up. We could just go and hide. It, it sounds understandable. And yet what Nehemiah says is, can such a man as I run away? He recognizes that he's important because he's a leader. He recognizes that the people look to his example. He also recognizes that he is not a Levite. He's not a priest. And so what he says is, I will not go in. Nehemiah will not morally compromise, even in a time of crisis. I mean, if there was a time to break this law, I mean, you could argue it could be here. You know, this is to save a man's life, potentially. But Nehemiah won't have it. Nehemiah stands firm because he sees that what seems reasonable is unrighteous and wrong and would be a sin against God. And so it's then, in verse 12, uh, that the veil is lifted. And Nehemiah says, And I understood and saw that God had not sent him. Probably up until this point, he thought he was meeting a true prophet. Otherwise, he probably wouldn't have even gone to him. But rather, he had pronounced the prophecy against him because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. This would-be prophet was in the, po the, 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 the pocket of the enemy. They were on his payroll. 
It says, for this purpose he was hired that I should be afraid and act in this way in sin. And so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. If Nehemiah had gone into the temple, you can imagine what they would have said. This man claims to come from God, but he hides in the temple. He disobeys the very God for whom he is trying to build a wall for. This is your leader? Wasn't he supposed to be a, a, a man who feared God? You shouldn't listen to him. Stop building that wall. Return back. Leave Jerusalem at once. And then, and, and by the way, Scripture says you, you have to kill him now. The conspiracy was real. But look at Nehemiah's response. Once again, in the moment of crisis, Nehemiah turns to prayer. In a moment when Nehemiah could have been filled with discouragement or rage or anger, he turns to the Lord. And he says, Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, oh my God, according to all these things that they did, and also the prophetess, Noadiah, and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. He turns to God, <clears throat> and just as he did in a few chapters earlier, he asks God to remember his enemies. He is letting God be the avenger. I'm sure that he felt a lot of things, frustration and anger, or, or at least um, a, just a bundle of emotions. But instead he turns to God and he says, God, remember them for what they have done. Nehemiah could have chosen to go to war. He could have put Shemaiah to death. I mean, he could have done a lot of things. And he leaves justice up to God. Nehemiah continually shows that God is truly the focus of why he does anything. He's who he lives for, and it's him who he turns to in times of difficulty, despair, and crisis. As we unpack that in a moment, we realize it's not just Noah, it's not just Shemaiah who is a false prophet against Nehemiah. There's also the prophetess Noadiah, and we don't know anymore uh, about this uh, woman other than that. But then it says the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. We realize that this is not just an isolated incident. This is time and time again. I mean, Nehemiah showing up to the office and getting another prophecy against him, that was just another Monday morning. And that can wear down on a person. And yet, Nehemiah sticks to it. Nehemiah trusts in God to fight his own battles. Nehemiah doesn't take matters into his own hands. He allows God to be God, to be a God of justice towards sinners. And he says, remember them. Remember them. And we know that, you know, when we face injustice in this life, when we face enemies who, or a difficult boss, coworkers, people who just oppose us for trying to live a righteous and godly life, if, we, if you face that, we can, uh, we can employ the same type of prayer. Lord, you judge them. Lord, you are the avenger, Scripture says. And then we move on to the next part. It's there after uh, the reasonable retreat. Nehemiah, his response, what he actually does, it just says, so the wall was finished. Six chapters later, Nehemiah, Nehemiah finally finishes the wall. And this brings us to our third part that I'm ca calling the foes at the finish line. And here we're going to see the, the, the enemies or the foes of God, how they respond, and also how they continue. It reads this in chapter, and verse 15. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul, which was about early October, in 52 days. 
In 52 days, Nehemiah had done what no man had been able to do in 140 years. It had been attempted before, and yet it had been stopped. And it says, when our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid, and they fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Let's stop there for a moment. Um, we see here that Nehemiah, his response to all the conspiracy that is going on, all the attacks against him, all the false prophecy is he keeps calm and carries on, uh, to borrow a phrase. Um, he continues on, and it says, when their enemies heard of it, they would have heard that, you know what, we didn't stop Nehemiah. He just kept building the wall. They put up the gate. It says they heard of it. And the nations around the Ammonites, the Arabs, everyone around, they heard of it, and they fell greatly in their own esteem. And I think there's a helpful lesson here, that when we persevere and we put to silence the enemies of God, those who oppose what is righteous and good, that a godly testimony will help put people in their place, that the confidence and the arrogance that they might have felt uh, to live the way in which they did, to propose uh, the decisions they're making, they can evaporate in an instant. However haughty and strong the enemies of God were feeling, it, it is silence when they see that wall still go up. That everything they threw at Nehemiah didn't matter because Nehemiah's passion for God was too strong. But not only that, look what it continues to say. It says, For they perceived that the work had been accomplished with the help of our God. It's like Matthew 5, which talks about <clears throat> letting our light shine before men so that when people see our life, they may praise, Father, praise God the Father. They might see our good deeds and realize that there is a God. Nehemiah's building project helped people to realize, helped the other nations who are watching, who are hearing. It made them realize that the only way that wall was completed was not by architectural ingenuity or human cunning. It was done by the help of God. It was getting the other people who witnessed this to say, there surely must be a God in Israel, because only God could help them do something like that. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's so true for our own lives that when we follow after God and when we do what would be impossible apart from his strength, that it does have the ability as well to help people, that when people see our lives, that other people might go, that kind of generosity, that type of compassion, that type of dedication to help those who are poor and downtrodden and oppressed, surely there must be a God. As we look at our own lives, as we look at the way in which we serve, as we think of the great work of God that he is called to do in your life, the service that you render, the ministry you are called to, uh, do people around you perceive that perhaps there must be a God for the work you do? If our work is just human, if it's just our own ability, if it's purely just pragmatism and by the strength of our own exertion, then people might say, you know, anyone else could do that. But when we are praying for God to strengthen our hands, we realize that we are able to do mighty things for God um, that point people to the reality and the apologetic for the existence of God. 
Now verse 18 continues. And it, though, though some, though many, perceive that there was a God, the conspiracy continues. For it says, many in Judah, oh, sorry, it says, moreover in those days, the nobles of Judah, remember those guys, those are the guys who, during the building of the wall, they didn't want to do the work. So the men of Tekoa actually had to do their work. Well, perhaps there's a reason for that. Because the nobles of Judah sent letters to Tobiah. They were spies. They were informants. And Tobiah sent letters to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Arah. We find that Tobiah, even though being an Ammonite, he had intermarried. And so, um, even though in Ezra chapter 10, they are specifically told by Ezra to not intermarry and actually to put, a, to put away uh, their wives from the nations because they did not follow after the God of Israel. Well, they didn't listen, at least not, Tobiah, not this family. So Tobiah has married into a Jewish family. Moreover, we find that his son, uh, Jehohanan, had taken the daughter Meshulam. His son also intermarries, and so now there are family ties within Israel, and there have been for some time. Also, it says, they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. So as all this is going on, there are, you find that all the rooms have ears, that they're whispering to Tobiah, that he doesn't know where his friends are and where his foes are. And it says, and Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. Even after the work was done, the onslaught continues. It didn't stop. It continued to come. And it reminds us that when we serve God, when we have great work to do here at church, here on your campuses, at your, um, at your schools, in your workplace, that the, the temptations and the difficulties, the opposition from the enemy continues. That even when we think we're done, uh, the, the attempts can be relentless. Scripture talks about Satan is like a prowling lion seeking to devour and though Nehemiah, and though, though Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid, it appears that it didn't work. It falls on ears that will have nothing to do with it. It's here at the finish line that we see Nehemiah's calm resolve. During all that, he puts his hand to the work. He continues to live by what he said, I'm doing a great work, and I cannot come down. In our own life, we have to recognize that there are many great works we are called to, and rightly understood, many of them can honor God. But in times of difficulty, we need to have the similar resolve as Nehemiah to continue to persevere when difficulty comes our way, and especially when it's something God has called you to directly, like Nehemiah. Now then, we come to chapter 7. To chapter 7. And no, I'm not going to read the entirety of chapter 7 you're welcome. I was talking with Pastor David. I'm like, should I read it? And he was like, ah, that'd probably be a little difficult. But let me point, point out some observations. First of all, we can call this the resettlement of the remnant. The resettlement of the remnant. And really what we get here is first in the beginning, we're going to get a few more things that Nehemiah does. Then we're going to get a list of the exiles, a genealogy, and then uh, a few more notes. But here's kind of what I want to point us to. Nehemiah, even when his works, it seems like he's done. He built the wall. He did it. Nehemiah's not done because he understands that his goal is to support and promote the glory of God. It says 
that after the wall had been built, he sets up the doors, the gatekeepers. He puts his brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, in charge. He has, puts leaders in place, and it says about them that he doesn't just put them because they're his brothers, and whether or not they're his physical brother or whether they are close brothers. Um, it says he puts them in place because they were more faithful and God-fearing man than many. Here we are reminded that the people that God must put in charge to shepherd our people and to pastor our flocks, to elder over us, we are reminded it's not a matter of just skill or giftedness, not a matter, not a matter of title, not a matter of their, their pedigree or where they come from. It's a matter of godly character. And that's who it's put in charge. And as an interesting note, Hanani is actually the one who, earlier in chapter 1, who gives the report to ne- Nehemiah that the walls had been put down. Well, Nehemiah knows that the threat continues, and so even though he could have just put his hands up and said, okay, everything's good, he does something very interesting. He tells them <clears throat> that the gates of Jerusalem basically should not be opened until the sun is hot. That's kind of a strange command because typically you'd open the gates in the morning, business would come through, people would come through, and then you close it at night so there would be uh, no attacks or no unwanted people. But Nehemiah knows that an attack can still come. And so to protect the people to protect the glory of God, to fulfill Nehemiah chapter 1, where he talked about he would protect his people, he puts up more guard and more defenses. He says he points guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts, so at their guard towers, and some in front of their own homes. He knows that it's not over. He knows that it's really just begun. You know, in many ways, I would have expected Nehemiah to maybe end here at chapter 6. But this is kind of the middle. And we find out there's more to come. It says the city was wide and large, and, not, and the people in it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. Um, it's kind of a weird thing to say, because it says a verse earlier that they were in front of their homes, but then no houses had been rebuilt. Um, this is basically probably a Hebrew idiom of saying, though houses were built, there were not enough, as if it were like no houses had been rebuilt. People were still in tents, they were still in ruins. Um, there wasn't enough, the people were defenseless. So what does he do? Nehemiah then moves in, and he decides to put in his heart something that probably most of us would never say, I put, God put this in my heart. He says, I'm going to do a genealogy. And he gets together, and he, re, he enrolls everyone by who their family was. And you'll notice that this is um, nearly an exact copy of the genealogy in Ezra. And uh, with a few exceptions, it's, it's pretty much the same. Some of the numbers are different, and probably the reason for this was since Ezra's return a generation ago, there probably had more people who were born, um, so people decided to go back, more people came. But Nehemiah enrolls to see who is here, who is left, and we find in verse 66 that the whole assembly was 42,000. All that's left of Israel who has come back at this time is 42,000 people. It sounds like a lot, and it's a good number, but it's a small fraction of what Israel had been in past times. And so Solomon, I mean, not Solomon, during, during Solomon's times. And so during this time, to give you a perspective of how big that was, that'd be the equivalent of if you filled the Staples Center two times over. Now, why does he mention the genealogy? I think, number one, it's to recognize God's faithfulness. He is showing God is faithful to his word. All the people are being brought back. He's also trying to see who are the people who need to be brought back, right? For the people to live in Jerusalem, to fulfill Nehemiah chapter 1, where he talks about bringing all the people back, who are those people? 
But also, Nehemiah's chief concern here is about worship. Because Nehemiah, his real objective is not just to build a wall. His main objective is to bring back worship. Notice the first thing he does in verse 1. It says, I set up the doors, the gatekeepers, then the singers. We could say the worship leaders and the Levites. We, those are the people who helped worship. Maybe like the ushers and the children's ministry workers. Not quite, but somewhat. And then it says that he gathered together the temple servants, uh, verse 60. And then what he does uh, is he checks their genealogies. He checks their genealogies. It says, um, in verse 64, they, there are some people who sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogy, but it was not found there, so they were excluded from the priesthood. Even in all the administrative things, in the conspiracies, and all the difficulties, he is still holding firmly and fastly to the word of God. He is cutting no corners. God's glory must be upheld. And then in verse 73, after listing all the generosity of the people of God who gave to this work, it said, so then the priests, the Levites, and the gatekeepers, and the singers, they settled into the town, and then everyone in Israel was in their town. In verse 1, we just had the Levites, we just had um, the singers. Nehemiah goes through all of that in part to bring back the priesthood because Nehemiah's chief concern is worship. It's never been about building a wall. It's never been about that. And so Nehemiah reminds that the purpose of wall building was worship building. Let me give you a few application points uh, to close out our time. I think it's easy as we read this, um, you know, to just read this as just a narrative. Um, and there's, there's many parts of it. We have to approach it differently from an epistle. It doesn't call us directly to do things um, necessarily. But here's some things perhaps we can take home with us. Number one, uh, we must not expect serving God to be easy. If Nehemiah shows us anything, it was not easy. If you look at King David's life, it was not easy. If you look at Jesus' life, it was not easy. If you look at the Apostle Paul. And so when we serve God, when you, when you give your life to doing Christian ministry, serving the church, living out your faith at home and at work, it is not easy. And sometimes the attacks the enemy puts in our life are very direct and upfront and vocal. Secondly, it's important that we don't shy away from the work God has called you to. Nehemiah said, I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. And I think that we have to be reminded of that. That what we're doing here at church, what we do on Sundays, what you're doing at home in family worship, what you're doing in your college dorms, reading the Bible with your friends, that great work is something that God has called us to. And there has to be times where we say it's too important to be bothered. I cannot come down. And though surely we need balance with this, you know, it reminds us that when we have parents who have, on Saturdays, they have to put, cut away some time away from their kids to work on Sunday school lessons. They're doing a great work and cannot come down. Um, when you, there's this business or job opportunity that would take you away from something, when you have overtime hours that are offered that you would love to jump on, but there's opportunities to shepherd your kids and attend uh, their activities, Sometimes it's right to say, I'm doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Thirdly, it's important to remember that we ought to 
pursue obedience over self-preservation. Nehemiah could have made an excuse to Ben, just say, you know what, I'm an exception. I'm going to disobey the law of God because I've got to protect myself. I have to take care of myself. And we are reminded that God tells us that we must obey his law and be holy and righteous above all other things. That sin will not be tolerated. That there is no man such as I that can go into the temple and live. But lastly, if there's one thing that really stands out to me from the book of Nehemiah in chapter 6 and 7, it's this. That every great work for God must culminate into worship. That every great work for God must culminate into worship. For Nehemiah, it wasn't just about a wall. It was about worship. He wasn't building a wall to just improve national security. He was doing it so people might return to God. So for us, church, as we send people to build buildings in Mexico, it's not just about building buildings. When we are building our children's ministries, when we're setting up VBS, when we have all these fun youth group games, when we're trying to get drivers for college ministry, when we're trying to get food for uh, the, the lunches we have, those things are good, but it must always culminate in worship. The service we give to God must never just stop there. It must always find its end result in setting up worship. And so as we think about our own lives, it's important that what we do for God must increase our own personal worship. That when we make much for God, it must make much of God. That what we do must not only stimulate our own personal worship, but it should produce worship in our church among our other brothers and sisters. That when we do things, we must always ask the question, am I just building a wall or am I trying to reestablish and grow worship? And when we build ministry and when we labor and toil and endure difficulty, we must remember that, it must, that what we do must endeavor to produce worship in the hearts of others where no worship exists. Nehemiah is an exercise in a man who was pragmatic and who administrated and did many things, who worked hard, but it was always about God and his glory. And so for us, it must always be about Christ and the gospel. What we do must never be about putting our hands to the plow, but rather putting our hands before a holy God and bowing the knee. I leave you with this final thought. Young William Wilberforce was discouraged one night in the early 1790s after another crippling defeat in his 10-year battle against the slave trade in England. Tired and frustrated, he opened his Bible and began to leaf through it. A small piece of paper fell out and fluttered to the floor. It was a letter written by John Wesley shortly before his death. It read, Unless the divine power of God has raised you up, I see not how you can go through your glorious enterprise in opposing slavery, which is a scandal of religion, of England, and of human nature. But unless God has raised you up for this very thing, you'll be worn out by the opposition of men and devils. But if God be for you, who can be against you? Are all of them together stronger than God? Oh, be not weary of well-doing. Go in the name of God and in the power of his might. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you knowing that you have given us work to do. That as long as we draw breath and are here on this earth, your glory needs to be extended. Your kingdom needs to be grown. Your gospel needs to be proclaimed. And Father, we pray and we ask that you would strengthen our hands. 
Lord, that you would help us to recognize how great the work you've called us to do in our own lives, and that we would have times in which we say, I cannot come down. This is too important. Lord, would you make us a people who are passionate for your glory? Lord, may we never make things just about wall building, but may it be about worship building. We thank you, Father. We pray that you would work in our own lives and convict us. Amen.